Good morning, everyone. Today we'll be having two Bible readings today, uh, Jonah chapter 4 and Luke chapter 15. First things first, if you do not have a Bible, please raise your hand and a student will come and provide you one. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The first passage will be Jonah chapter 4, starting from verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plan and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plan. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night and should not i pity nineveh that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle the next passage comes from luke 15 starting from verse 11 luke 15 11 And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the youngest son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But he came to himself and said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you will always be with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord.
Thanks, Dan, for that reading. A big warm welcome to everyone here this morning. My name is Stephen, one of the pastors of the church, along with Ben, uh, our senior pastor. Now, if you haven't noticed, uh, Ben isn't here with us this morning. Uh, he is feeling a little bit off. We are 99.99% sure he doesn't have COVID-19, uh, and he's going to plan to be here uh, in the second service. So if you uh, want to catch Ben, uh, he'll hopefully be here uh, by morning tea time, uh, so you can say hi to him then. Speaking of COVID-19, uh, as a church, we are keeping a very close eye uh, and a watch on this, and we will continue to try and wisely navigate this through uh, as a church. Uh, we're going to probably make some mistakes in terms of things we should do and things we communicate, so we're asking everyone now for your forbearance, your patience with us uh, as we try and work out what to do in this rather extraordinary circumstance in this time. As you can see, this room is uh, fairly empty-ish. Normally, it's quite packed on a Sunday morning. Uh, a few people are away at home. We do have a live stream going on. Hello, everyone. Uh, it is going on, uh, we are live streaming via YouTube, so if you do wish to stay home, um, yeah, out of personal protection, out of care, concern for others, that's, that's fine. Uh, we'd love for you to be able to tune in via YouTube there. I understand, I think when I last checked, there are 10 people uh, streaming with us online, so hello again uh, online. Um, the training session this afternoon is going to go ahead as well. Ben is hopefully going to be able to make it. Hopefully he doesn't get worse throughout the day. Uh, but we don't want to, again, pressure anyone who doesn't feel comfortable uh, coming into large crowds. Um, it's, uh, there's about 100 people registered, which is way lesser than the 500-plus gatherings uh, to be cancelled in the near future. But if you do feel uncomfortable, again, don't feel at all pressured that you must come along to that. We would love for you to come, but again, it's uh, optional and the notes will be made available for all. Finally, congratulations to Simeon and Audrey for engagement. Um, some wonderful news, so check out the ring later on. For now, we're going to take a short break, so feel free to stand, stretch, tap Audrey on the shoulder, give her a shake. Give Simeon a handshake here too, or an elbow bump. That's the new thing, the elbow bump. So we'll be back in a few short moments. Alrighty, friends, uh, let's get that back together again. So we've uh, come now to the final sermon in our journey, short Jonah sermon series. Uh, if you want to keep your Bibles open to Jonah chapter 4, we'll be walking through that together. Keep your finger in Luke 15, we'll be reading that towards the end as well. And as always, on the inside of the bulletin is a sermon outline for you to follow along uh, and take notes if you wish. As always, 
And as we must, let me pray and ask God to help us receive and hear this word. Let me pray. Our gracious, loving, heavenly, merciful Father, we thank you so much for this book. Over the past few weeks, we have walked through it. We've been surprised, surprised at how you've been at work, surprised at the character of Jonah that we have learned, surprised at the response of the pagans within this story. So we pray again that your spirit will be at work in us to lift the, the blinders of familiarity, to lift the blinders of unbelief, to hear your word, to receive it, to be challenged by it, and to live rightly in response. Father, we pray for your grace and mercy now to hear your word and live obediently for, our, for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. God sent a big storm. Jonah was on a boat in the storm. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah did not want to go, so he ran away. The other people on the boat were afraid. Jonah said, I am running away from God. If you throw me into the water, God will stop the storm. The men threw Jonah into the water. The storm stopped. Then God sent a big fish. God told the fish to swallow Jonah. The big fish swallowed Jonah. Jonah was in the fish for a long time. There in the fish, Jonah prayed to God. He told God he was sorry. He asked God to forgive him. Then God told the fish, let Jonah go. And the fish obeyed God. It threw Jonah out on the land. Then God told Jonah to go to Nineveh again. This time, Jonah obeyed. He went and told the people of Nineveh about God. The end. The early reader's Bible captures, I think, a common understanding of the book of Jonah. It's a story about a prophet who disobeys God, who asks for forgiveness, who receives mercy, and then obeys God. And that's it, right? That's the end of it, yes? Well, over the past few weeks, we've seen a very different story. As we've simply looked at the text, as we have read and reread what is actually there, a far more complex and nuanced story has come up. The story has actually been brighter than the children's version we remember. That the pagans in the story have always been a shining light of listening to God and responding. And at the same time, the story has been much darker than the children's version we remember. See, if the pagans are the bright light, well, then Jonah feels like a black hole. See, remember in Jonah chapter 1, we saw Jonah hear God's call, but disobediently flee. Jo chapter 1 highlights the hypocrisy of Jonah, of Jonah, claiming to fear Yahweh, yet fleeing to, from his presence. Jonah is contrasted with the pagan sailors who meet Yahweh in the storm, who fear him and worship him. Then in chapter 2, with Jonah's prayer inside the belly of the fish, we saw Perhaps surprisingly, that Jonah's prayer is self-centered. He gaslights God, which is another way of saying that he blames God for throwing him into the sea. He presumes upon God's mercy and grace. And yet, in the face of this deep selfishness, God still astonishingly shows him mercy saving him from the sea by the fish and causing the fish to vomit him out again. By chapter 3, Jonah has finally made it to that great city. He gives a very curt five-word judgment sermon and astonishingly again, the whole city responds. Everyone from the greatest to the least turns from their evil ways. Every one of them cries out for mercy and God relents. Absolutely stunning. This story has contained so many twists and turns. And given the journey of Jonah so far, what would we expect to happen next? I, I'm a bit of an optimist. I think I, think I fall on the side of optimist realist. Uh, so I'd be hoping that Jonah would rejoice 
spend some time in Nineveh preaching to the pagans, helping them to convert to Yahweh worship like the pagan sailors. But a bit of courage and a bit of trust could, in God could radically reshape ancient history. But instead we read in verse 1 that Jonah is exceedingly displeased and angry. Now, in this chapter, there's a, there's a couple of word plays in, that our English Bibles don't quite help us to see. See, throughout the book in this chapter, and in this chapter, there is this word that keeps popping up. In Hebrew, it is ra'ah, which in, in the ESV is translated evil or disaster. It first appears in chapter 1, verse 2, where God says, Nineveh's ra'ah has come before me. Now, the ESV is translated as evil, but it could also be translated as disaster. That is to say, God is saying that because of Nineveh's evil ways, their disaster, their ra'ah, has come before me. It appears again in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, when the sailors are searching for the source of the ra'ah, the disaster that is upon them, and they're asking who is responsible for the disaster of the storm. Again, it comes up in chapter 3, verse 8, when the king of Nineveh calls on his people to turn from their ra'ah ways, and again, in chapter 3, verse 10, when God sees that they've turned from their ra'ah, he relents from bringing ra'ah upon them. You see, he sees their, them turning away from their evil, and he relents from bringing disaster. Same word. Now here, in chapter 4, verse 1, when Jonah sees that disaster has been turned away, it is literally exceedingly ra'ah to Jonah. See, to Jonah, it is a disaster that disaster has been turned away. And it's interesting how by the end of chapter 3, Ra'ah has been removed from Nineveh, but now, in, as we open chapter 4, Jonah seems to have taken all of that Ra'ah on himself. See, you would think that after all that Jonah has been through, that his response to Nineveh's turning away from evil would have been to thank God, to, to rejoice that they turned from their evil and avoided the disaster of God's judgment. But to Jonah, the whole situation is evil in his eyes. It is so wrong. It is so wrong for God to show mercy and grace to such a wicked people. Jonah is utterly scandalized by how inclusive God's mercy is. But, but why is that? Why is God's mercy now so disastrous to him? Well, Jonah tells God in verse 2. He says to God, I told you so. Right? It's like how when one of my kids is being a bit silly and I say to them, hey, if you keep doing that, you know, you're going to get yourself hurt. And they go on ahead and they keep doing it and surprise, surprise, they get hurt. And sometimes my response is not gracious, compassionate, love and grace and reassurance, but a sinful, I told you so. Right? Jonah has his own I told you so moment here in verse 2. Have a read with me again, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I is yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, don't move too quickly through this. Understand that Jonah is angry because God has acted consistently with his own character. Jonah is angry that God is God. This rehearsal of God's character, you know, this whole gracious, loving, and, and so forth, comes from Exodus 34, which is deeply, deeply ironic. Remember in Exodus 32 how Israel was sinned profoundly with the golden calf. God judged a whole bunch of them and his anger was burning so hot that he wanted to destroy the entire nation. Moses steps in and pleads with Israel and, he, and God spares them. And because of this intervention, we read in Exodus 32 verse 12 and Exodus 32 verse 14 that God relented from sending disaster. Those same words here in Exodus, now applied to Nineveh. So Jonah is saying to God, I told you so. I told you. I knew that you were like this all along. That's why I ran. This is a startling confession. Jonah ran in chapter 1 because he did not want God to be God. 
He did not want God to be gracious and merciful. Right? Grace is when God gives good gifts to the undeserved. Mercy is when God holds back punishment that is deserved. So Nineveh deserved disaster, but God held that back, mercy, and graciously gave them more time. Jonah hated that. Jonah didn't want God to be slow to anger. He didn't want to God to be patient and postpone his anger any longer. Jonah didn't want God to abound in steadfast love. My steadfast love is the word chesed, my all-time favorite word in the Bible. Chesed doesn't just mean that God is full of love. It means that God's love is covenantal. It is based on his word and promise. Why does God love his people? Not because they are lovely, for we are not. Not because God's people have earned his love, but because he promises to love his people. He's, his word has assured them that he will love them. And just as his word is trustworthy and always fulfilled, God's love is sure, it's certain, it's unrelenting. Jonah had received this steadfast love from God. Remember in chapter 2, right at the end, he knew that God was like this, and he loved it, he, he received it, he presumed upon it. In his self-righteous prayer, he assumed that he deserved this steadfast love. But now, when that same mercy and grace and hesed is shown to others, Jonah is not filled with praise, but burns with anger. And at last on the list in verse 2 is that Jonah did not want God to relent from disaster, from sending disaster. He didn't want God to hold it back anymore. He wanted him to let it go, to not conceal it any longer. See, here's the thing. I think verse 2 reveals, uh, I think this is what I think verse 2 reveals about Jonah. See, this repetition of God's character shows that Jonah knows God but he doesn't want to let God be God. He loves it when God's character qualities work in his favor, but not so when it comes to his enemies. When God is God, when God acts consistently with his own character, that causes Jonah to be exceedingly angry. So angry that he's had enough. You have a look at verse 3. Have a look at verse 3 and look what he prays. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And he's telling God, I've had enough of you. It, I can't run or flee from your presence. I've worked that out already. So just take my life. If you want to show grace and mercy to the Ninevites, do it over my dead body. Rehearsing God's character, seeing God's astounding mercy and grace firsthand is too much for him. It's way too confronting. He's had enough. Dying was better than living if the enemy lived. Now, God sees this and he, he asks a question. Don't you love it how God always asks questions? Right? When he, he did the, just like he did with Adam and Eve when they sinned, he asked them questions. Just like he did with Cain when he was filling with rage against his brother. God asks questions in order to get to the heart. And so he asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Which is another way of saying, is it doing you any good to be this angry Jonah? Is it right for you to burn with anger because the mercy you received is now being shown to others? Now, the obvious answer to that is no. But Jonah is silent. Jonah is angry, but it's totally wrong-headed. God shows mercy. He showed mercy to Jonah, which Jonah selfishly took as a given. And now that same mercy has been shown to Nineveh. It's too much for him. And so what does Jonah do? He's chucked an almighty hissy fit. Right? Like a child throwing a temper tantrum. So now what? Well, instead of sticking around, he heads to the city limits. He builds himself a little shelter. He turns to look at the city. He sits down and then he waits. He's waiting for the fireworks to begin. He's waiting to see if God will 
or is hoping to see that God will bring down judgment. And so God gives Jonah a lesson. Time to teach Jonah what he's been getting wrong all this time. Now, as we heard in that Bible reading, this is a bit of a strange lesson. Uh, let's see if we can clearly learn the lesson, though. Here's what happens. As Jonah's sitting there, God appoints a plant to grow. Now, that word appoint is really crucial. It's, it, again, it's one of those words that keeps appearing throughout the book. God appointed the storm. God appointed the fish. Now here, God appoints this plant to grow, and it grows quickly, big enough to help shade Jonah and give him some shelter from the scorching sun of the Middle East. Now, notice in the middle of verse 6, in the middle of verse 6, we read that Jonah is saved from his discomfort. The word discomfort there is the word rah'ah. God sends the plant and saves Jonah from disaster. And now notice how Jonah responds to being saved from rah'ah. In verse, end of verse 6, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But easy come, easy go. In verse 7 and 8, God again appoints more elements in this story. This time he appoints a worm to chew up and the plant and kill it. Here one day, gone the next. And then God appoints a scorching east wind. Not a cool ocean breeze that we've been enjoying the last few days, but a stifling hot draft of air and the sun to beat down on his head. Jonah is now sitting in a fan-forced oven with the temperature cranked to maximum. After 45 minutes, his outside will be crisp crackling while remaining juicy and tender on the inside. Sorry, MasterChef season is about to start again. But you get the idea. Jonah is so hot that again he wishes to die. His discomfort is fast becoming a disaster. In verse 9, again, God asks another question. Hey, I see you're getting a bit worked up about the plant. Is it doing you any good to be angry enough to die? And the response is shocking. And clearly Jonah does not get this whole lesson. Yes, I am angry. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Now here's the confronting point of this lesson. Let's visualize it. Let's visualize the hypocrisy of this moment. God's mercy brings relief from Rah'ah. When God showed this mercy to Nineveh, it made Jonah exceedingly angry. But when God shows this same mercy to Jonah, he is exceedingly glad. That is self-centered hypocrisy. See, here's the point of the plant. Jonah is a hypocrite who loves when God shows mercy to him, but hates it when God shows this, that same mercy to his enemy. Sorry, I'll there we go. Randy's taking a photo of that. <laughs> but the lesson doesn't end there. When God kills that plant, Jonah gets really upset, like really, really upset. It's almost as if he's saying to God, of course I should be angry. That plant meant so much to me. Its destruction is horribly wrong. It deserved life, not death. Blessing, not cursing. Mercy and compassion, not disaster. And God's response in verse 10, 11 brings this lesson to a close. God basically says this, Jonah, you show pity for a plant that you did not create. It was here one day and it's gone the next. And so if you pitied that plant you didn't create, shouldn't I show pity on a nation of 120,000 people that I have created? Jonah, on a scale of disaster, I want you to put your plant against the 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left hand. They have no moral compass. Tell me, which do you think is more important? The plant or those people? Or even include the animals, the cattle in that. Which do you think is more important? You pity what you did not make. I made all 120,000 of them. So I pity them. You were glad to receive mercy, my mercy, something you didn't deserve. They received my mercy, something they didn't deserve. 
can't you be glad for them as well? How does Jonah respond? Turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, verse 12. Ah? Do you notice there's no verse 12? We, we, we don't know. We don't know how Jonah responded. We've got an open-ended end, like, ending. We're not told how he responded. We have a bit of a cliffhanger. Does Jonah get it? Does he respond? Does he repent of his self-righteousness and, and verging on sinful anger? We're not told. We're left with God's profound mercy and gracious pity on Nineveh confronting Jonah's profound anger and self-interested pity, which displays with deep hypocrisy. And Jonah's story is not his alone. Remember what we know of Jonah. Remember way back when we looked at the first chapter, we met Jonah in actually 2 Kings chapter 14. And we learned there and we saw there that Jonah is a compromised prophet. He's a man of God who seems to be putting his nation first rather than God first. The selection of Jonah for this mission trip is utterly surprising. And we finished this book, as we finished this, this book, I wonder if the reason for Jonah's selection has now become clear. Jonah is a mirror of his nation, a people who have so lost their way, who, have, have, who were recipients of profound, undeserved mercy from God, but were now presuming upon it. The nation of Israel, who lacked mercy for the lost, especially those they saw as undeserving, who were so focused on themselves, so full of self-righteous pride, that they were in danger of bringing disaster upon themselves. You see, ultimately, all people, Jonah, the Jews, pagans, and even Ninevites, are undeserving people. No one deserves anything from God. But the book of Jonah has been written to shock us, to show us that despite our undeserving nature, God is shockingly merciful to all people. In this book, it seems that Jonah didn't get that. And he's not alone. So the idea that God shows mercy and grace to the undeserving seems to be news that God's people consistently forget. And it seems to not only do God, uh, it, it seems that not only do God's people seem to forget that, but they also start acting as though they deserve something from God. You can see this clearly in the New Testament. Jonah's message is the message that comes to its fullness in the coming of the Lord Jesus. In Luke 15, Jesus is welcoming and eating with tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees, they see this and they start grumbling to themselves. How is it that Jesus eats with people like that? It's so wrong, so profoundly wrong. And knowing their hearts, Jesus tells them three parables back to back, all strung together, so we're meant to read them as one. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. Right? Culminating in the parable of the prodigal son. Now, a, a few commentators have noticed that in the first half of this parable, Jonah looks like the younger son. Right? He was with the father, but then he scorned the father. He runs off in disobedience, but he eventually comes back. But in, Jonah, in chapter 4, here, that we've looked at in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah is now acting like the older brother in this parable. Annoyed, deeply annoyed, that God would be so extravagant in welcoming and celebrating the return home of sinners. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 15, verse 25. Luke 15, verse 25. Let's read this parable from the older son, uh, from his perspective. Luke 15, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf and because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. 
his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours has come, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting that to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Notice the parallels here between Jonah, the Pharisees, and the older brother in this parable, especially how they respond to the father's extravagant mercy and joy in the repentance of lost sinners. The older brother is so much a reflection of the Pharisees and echoes the same attitude of Jonah. You see, the Pharisees would definitely say they knew God. They could rehearse God's character. But when God is God and he welcomes and celebrates the repentance of sinners, they respond in anger. Maybe not so much anger that they could die, but definitely so much anger that they could kill. And notice that just like Jonah 4, this parable also ends in a cliffhanger. Does the older brother soften his heart and join the feast? Will the Pharisees understand who Jesus is, who God is like? Will they join in the celebrations? Have you ever wondered why Jonah and this parable end so abruptly? It's to throw the question back to us, back onto the reader. Will you let God be God? Will you show compassion on the lost? Will you recognize your own self-righteousness and repent? Will you join the feast? See, if Jonah was a reflection of God's people, then the book of Jonah is calling us to be a reflection of God. I think that's the main question as we close this book. Are we people who are reflecting God's character? Are we concerned about what God is concerned about? Jonah was concerned for a plant. The older brother in the parable was concerned that he wasn't getting what he felt he deserved. The Pharisees were concerned that Jesus was eating with sinners. God was concerned about Nineveh. Jesus and the father in the parable were concerned that we should join in and celebrate the lost being found. So are we reflecting God's character? What might we need to repent of to reflect God's character? Now hopefully it's obvious by now, but we can't hold any hatred towards any group of people. And maybe there's a group out of people out there who we believe are undeserving of God's mercy. I mean, given the choice, would you rather see a hateful group like ISIS burn in hell? Or would you rather them repent and receive salvation in Christ? Maybe you've got strong feelings towards the Communist Party in China. You hate them. You think they are scum. But maybe, maybe that's not exactly our problem here at Esley Church. I, I know Christians who are pretty partisan and blunt about their dislike towards certain groups. But here at Esley Church, the members here, I, I'm kind of glad that it's not that obvious. Now, I don't know everyone exactly 100% well. And so if you do have this attitude, you do, you do need to repent of it. But while we may not say we hate any particular group, do we really show the same compassion and joy of God towards all people who join us. We may not hate people, but are we as welcoming as we think we are when it comes to people who don't look like us? So if this morning an Aboriginal man came in to our congregation, how friendly and welcoming would we be? And we're a middle-class, mostly Asian church, how welcoming would you be towards a blue-collar white person who is rough around the edges, whose language is a little bit more colourful than you like? A few years ago, at this church, we had some Iranian visitors. I noticed they came for a couple of weeks, but 
not many people came up to talk with them or connect with them. Now, maybe it was because we assumed that they were talking to other people. Maybe we assumed that they were just visiting the, our church one time. Or maybe we're not as welcoming as we thought. Here's another thought. Here's another thought, an area to think, to think about. <coughs> we're hoping to plant a church in the next couple of years, hoping maybe within the next two to three years. Uh, and the leadership of our church are hoping and praying that it will be a multicultural church plan. Right? We're going to, we're exploring potential partnerships with like-minded churches uh, to be able to partner together to build a multicultural church, a place where we can invite our non-Asian friends to. And I think if, if there's one reason why that will fail, it will be because we don't want to be involved in reaching out to people who are non-Asian. Again, we might not hate non-Asian people, and we agree that they are as undeserving of mercy like we are. But would we move out of our comfort zone in our own worlds to reach them? Would the comfort of being in a space with people just like us keep us away from God's mission? Maybe we'd prefer that someone else do it for us. Yeah, we're happy, we feel happy here. Maybe we're afraid to send our adult children to this church plant because you know what might happen if we start a multicultural church? We're going to reach out to non-Asians. We're probably going to reach out to non-middle-class people. So imagine a young white man comes along. He barely finished high school. His life is a bit of a mess. He's in his mid-twenties and he's only just started working as a mechanic's apprentice. He hears the gospel. He converts. He grows slowly and steadily as a young Christian man. And your daughter or your granddaughter meets that boy and they want to get married. Would we then be angry at God's mercy to that boy now? Would we be angry that our life plans are looking different than we hoped? Jonah was angry that God showed mercy to Nineveh. Now, we might not share that same degree of anger. You know, we can look at Jonah and be a bit shocked, but remember, we're not neutral observers of his life. His life is holding up a mirror to our own failings. See, if and when God's mercy really begins to impact our lives, when it actually pushes us out of our comfort zones, when we are doing things we've never done before and we feel afraid, would we then complain? Would we be tempted to disobey God's mission to go back to our own security? I'm throwing out a lot of questions here today because I don't have the exact answers. Only we together can work those answers out. Because like the book of Jonah, we're the only ones who can answer. One final question before we finish. Who told the story of Jonah? We're not told that Jonah himself wrote the story, so who ended up writing it? And why do we have this book here? If you've ever read through the Gospel of Mark, it becomes pretty clear that it's got the fingerprints of the Apostle Peter all over it. Right? Often in the, the stories in Mark are actually told from Peter's perspective. So there are some instances like when Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him, or the transfiguration where only Peter and John are there. You know, only what happened, only, the only person who could know what happened was actually someone who was there, that is Peter. But as you read through the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice that Peter comes across as an idiot. He's prideful, he's a touch arrogant, and he's probably the most famous in the Gospels for denying Jesus three times after having boasted that he would never do that. So why would Peter leave those stories in Mark's Gospel? Why would he be content in looking like an idiot? Only because Peter got it. Only because afterwards he realized his error and he kept those stories in to say, yes, I know, I stuffed up, I was an idiot, and by the grace of God, here I am today. 
Who told the story of Jonah? While we're not told that Jonah wrote it, it sure has the super obvious fingerprints of Jonah all over the story. So why would you tell a story where you are the anti-hero? Why would you include that presumptuous prayer in chapter 2? Why would you include those harsh words to God in chapter 4? I knew you were like this, so kill me now. Perhaps Jonah preserved all of this for his readers because in the end he got it. He finally understood that God's mercy and grace is not only confronting, but it is astounding. Jonah has been a mirror to our souls. It hasn't been pretty. We've seen a hypocritical, self-righteous, judgmental person who has so hated God's compassion and grace on sinners. We are all undeserving of God's mercy, but God astonishingly gives it to all. And the fact that we have this story might reveal that in the end, Jonah understood that too. Let me pray that we would understand these big lessons too. Father in heaven, it's been quite the journey through this book. We've seen your grace and your mercy revealed, but it has been bigger than we imagined. It's been more astounding. It's been confronting. And so we pray that you would confront us, that you would challenge the self-righteousness that might be a seed form, that might be sprouting, that might have taken root, We pray that you will confront that self-righteousness and that desire to remain comfortable in our own comfort zones. Confront it so that we might see your astounding mercy at work in this world. Father, help us to give up uh, the idols and the treasures that we cling on to that prevent us from showing and really and truly rejoicing in your compassion for lost sinners. Help us, Father, to be those people who keep trusting you always to the very end and who reflect your character, your concern for the lost, your grace, your mercy, your abounding steadfast love. For we pray these things for the growth of your kingdom, for your glory, and ultimately as well for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are all undeserving sinners, all undeserving recipients of God's mercy. So how will we respond? Will we be like Jonah, um, who presumed upon God's mercy and was exceedingly angry? Or will we reflect God's character um, and share, uh, recognize our own self-righteousness, repent of it, and reflect his character to the lost around us? As we think about these things and as we chat about it afterwards, uh, let's sing our final song, a song that we've been singing throughout this sermon series, His Mercy Is More. Please rise.
Let's pray. Lord, our sins are many, yet your mercy is more. Your mercy is astounding, it's extravagant, and it's confronting, as we've heard today. Lord, will we be like Jonah? Will we be like the Pharisees and the older brother? Angry, filled with self-righteousness and self-absorbed pity? Or will we reflect your character? We recognize our sin, we recognize our self-righteousness, repent of this, and throw ourselves upon your mercy. Will we reflect your compassion for the lost, to the lost around us? Lord, there's so many questions that um, this book has posed for us as it's held up this mirror to the most sinful parts and most selfish, self, selfish and self-righteous parts of our hearts. So we pray now, Lord, that you would help us as we chat about these things, as we you know, point each other back to your mercy, um, to keep resting in it, to be filled in uh, with awe of your character, um, and Lord, that we would let you be you, a God who is slow to anger and steadfast, um, who shows steadfast love um, to the